Well, this morning we are up to chapter 2, verses 10 to 21 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Peter. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is that the main subject um, matter on the mind of the apostle Peter, it has to do with false teachers and false teaching. He is focusing on those who distort, who deny, and who dilute the truth of God's word. That is what a false teacher is, one who dilutes, one who denies, one who distorts the truth of God's word. And Peter began at the beginning of chapter 2 by simply reminding us of the reality of false teachers. He began by talking about the sphere in which they work. And we were were told, and as we were reminded from from the the passage, from the chapter there, is that the sphere of the work of a false teacher, it is not out there somewhere in the unbelieving world, but instead it's right here intimately within the church among believers. We were reminded of the success of false teachers, that we should never underestimate the influence that a false teacher would have upon the unconverted and the newly converted, those who would be attracted to the ministries of false teachers. But then Peter also talked about the sustaining motive of false teachers. What keeps them in the game? What keeps them going? Well, it's all about, their ministries are all about what they can get rather than what they can give. By nature and by motivation, they are more interested in fleecing the flock of God rather than feeding the flock of God. And then we move from the reality of false teachers to last week we looked at the judgment for false teachers. We saw that in verses 3 to 10. And in that section, Peter really explained that judgment for false teachers is a certainty. In other words, it's going to happen. And what Peter did is that he took us back and he drew our attention to three Old Testament illustrations, three Old Testament examples of where God demonstrated his divine judgment upon the unrighteous, upon the wicked. And Peter did so to reinforce the fact that, hey, look, God's judgment upon false teachers is going to be demonstrated in the same kind of way at some point in the future. This is God, if God acts consistently like we we know that he always does, if he's judged unrighteousness, if he's judged falsehood in the past, well, we can be sure that he's going to do exactly the same in the future. But in the meantime, we were reassured from the passage last week that despite the ministries of false teachers and false teaching, that God will keep us, God will preserve us as Christians from the attacks and the influences of false teachers. And really, that brings us up to today's passage, where we move from the judgment for false teachers, as we saw last week, to now the description of false teachers, which we're going to see in today's passage, describing what a false teacher is actually looks like. And and I know that we've kind of done that in some sense in in, in weeks past, but this is really, he really dives deep, he really articulates in in, in all sorts of language throughout today's passage on this very thing. What does a false teacher actually look like? Describing a false teacher. When we think about it, this is very important for us to understand. It is important for us to understand how the Bible describes a false teacher, especially in the day in which we live today, where false teachers and false teaching abound. It's important for us to very be able to see and be able to articulate and be able to um, know what to be actually looking for. It's important for us to be able to understand the subject matter of the description of false teachers so that we're in a better position to identify false teachers as and when they arise. And so... That is what we were looking at today in today's, in today's passage. We're looking at the description of false teachers. He provides to us a description of the characteristics of false teachers in order that we might spot them, in order that we might avoid them, and that we might be in a better place to actually encourage others to, hey, move away from them, encourage others to move away from them in the same kind of way. Now, as we read out already, there's a a fair bit of content in verses 10 to 22, but we can divide the passage into four main parts, four main sections, broad sections, on the subject matter of describing false teachers. And so 
what is the division? How can we divide the passage? Well, firstly, in verses 10 to 13, Peter tells us that false teachers despise authority. That's the first thing. Secondly, in verses 13 to 16, we're going to see that Peter tells us that false teachers follow the corrupt desires of their sinful nature. Thirdly, in verses 17 to 19, we're going to see that false teachers proclaim an empty message which fails to save. And fourthly, we're going to see in verses 20 to 22 that false teachers tragically await a gloomy future. And so this is how we can broadly outline the passage that we're looking today, some broad characteristics of how it is that Peter describes false teachers. And so let's begin, first of all, giving our attention now to verses 10 to verse 13, where Peter describes for us, number one, that false teachers are those who despise authority. Picking up at the beginning of verse 10, let's give our attention to your Bibles. It says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring, uh, bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made, up, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things which they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. And let's just stop there. So in this first section here, what is Peter telling us? What is Peter telling us in this first section of the passage that we're looking at today where he describes false teachers? Well, notice, first of all, in your Bibles there in verse 10, the very first thing that Peter says in terms of describing false teachers is that false teachers despise authority. You can see the words there in your Bibles in verse 10. In other words, what is this telling us? It's telling us that false teachers have a strong resistance to any legitimate form of governance or jurisdiction that might be over them. Now, as we know from Scripture, God has ordained certain realms of authority for us as believers to recognize and for us as believers to submit ourselves to. For instance, God has purpose for there to be authority in the parent-child relationship. God has purposed also for there to be authority in the husband-wife relationship. He's also purposed for there to be authority in the church elder, church member relationship. And we know also from Scripture that he's purposed for there to be authority in the, the government and citizen relationship as well. But you see, a false teacher is one who does not like authority, doesn't like it, does not want to submit themselves to it. No, they don't want to submit themselves to any kind of authority that is over them, including God's authority himself. Now, in case you're wondering why false teachers despise authority and resist authority, well, Peter tells us in the next part of verse 10, notice in your Bibles, he says that they are presumptuous and self-willed. Now, what is that telling us? Well, <clears throat> presumptuous, it speaks of someone who is daring, someone who is bold. That is what presumptuous is. And being self-willed, basically, that's, that speaks of someone who's arrogant, they are determined to, to have things their own way, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. And so if you put those two characteristics together there, well, what is it telling us? What you have is a bold arrogance. Those who desire to set themselves up as the final authority rather than coming under, rightfully, God's authority. I think it's important for us to probably just remind ourselves of how it is that God exercises his authority. Because obviously they're, they're rejecting God's authority. So how does God actually exercise his authority? How does that work? What are they actually rejecting here? Well, it's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord. You know, I submit to the, the authority of Christ. But what does that mean? What does it look like personally and practically in the, in the life of an everyday believer? Well, here it is. The way that Jesus exercises his authority in the life of a believer and in the life of the church is simply through his word. It's through the Bible. Because it's through scripture that God tells us how we are to think. It's through scripture that God tells us what he wants us to do 
And it's through Scripture that God tells us how he wants us to live. That's how God exercises authority. It's through his word. And so here's the thing. We can know to what degree we are submitting to Christ by to what degree we are submitting ourselves to the instruction and to the truth of Scripture. Because again, Christ governs the life of the Christian. He governs the life of the church through his word. So when Peter says that false teachers despise authority, yes, they'll be very, very quick to reject any kind of human authorities that God has put in place, but don't be surprised if they also have a very low view of Scripture. A very low view of Scripture. Scripture will not be prominent in the life of a false teacher or in the ministry of a false teacher because they are more interested in exercising their own will or getting their own ideas across, their own motivations across to the people rather than submitting themselves to the authority of God. Friends, that has got to be the measure. That has got to be the measure. If a person is forsaking the Word of God through their ministries, if that is not the primary focus, then they are in no way submitting to God himself. And we need to understand this. A false teacher, they will despise authority, in particular the authority of God, by having a very low view of Scripture, not very prominent in their ministries. And so how does the bold, self-willed defiance of authority, how does this play itself out in the life of a false teacher? What does this look like in practical terms? Well, one way that it's demonstrated is through a complete disregard for the strength and the power of demonic beings. That's one way in which it is demonstrated. Because notice in verse 10 what Peter says. He says, this is what he means when he says, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, dignitary, it specifically refers here to fallen angels. It specifically refers to demonic beings beings. They're not afraid to speak evil or to speak against demonic forces. Now, how do we know that dignitaries is talking about demonic beings, demonic forces? Well, because firstly, Peter alludes to it in verse 11. Notice where he says, he goes, the very next thing he says is, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, he alludes to it there, but to make it very more, a lot more clear for us, we actually need to cross-reference here. Again, what are we doing? We're trying to work out what does Peter mean when he's talking about them speaking evil against dignitaries? Well, we have to cross-reference with Jude 8. And Jude 8, he, he, he communicates, a, he communicates a, a very parallel thought. And I want us to notice the similarities in the way that Jude speaks about false teachers. He says in Jude 8, Likewise, <clears throat> Also, these dreamers, he's talking about false teachers, defile the flesh, reject authority, speak evil of dignitaries. Now, here's the interpretation in terms of dignitaries. It says, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring an accusation of reviling, uh, against him, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so what are both... Peter and Jude wanting us to understand when it comes to the bold, self-willed defiance of authority in the life of a false teacher. Well, again, they want us to understand that false teachers will have a complete disregard concerning the strength and the power of Satan and other demonic beings. In other words, they will speak about demonic beings as though they themselves have authority and power over them. Now, let's think about this. When we look at the extreme end of the charismatic movement within churches today, I think that we see some of this kind of stuff going on. I I really do. I know that for some of us, we've perhaps seen this kind of thing up close and personal. We've seen it firsthand. That in the name of, let's say, spiritual warfare, there are church leaders today that are leading church members to rebuke the devil, to bind the devil, to take authority over the devil. And if you've seen it, like I've certainly seen it, I'm sure that some of you have, especially if you've had a, 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 you know, a, a, a charismatic background and on, on kind of the, the more liberal, wacky kind of end of it all, it, it can be quite an experience to witness. 
to see people in a, in a building strutting themselves back and forth, yelling at the devil, rebuking the devil, binding the devil, whatever, whatever that means. Bind the devil? And yes, there may or may not be times when a person is yelling at the devil, rebuking the devil, binding the devil, and they add a little phrase at the end of that, in Jesus' name. But here's the thing. Just because a person brings Jesus' name into an activity, it doesn't validate that activity unless that activity is explicitly instructed and taught within Scripture. I mean, what if I were to say, every man in this room must grow a beard in Jesus' name. I mean, the activity is not biblically warranted or validated just because I add a little phrase on the end that says, in Jesus' name. And so it is when you see people having some false representation of what true biblical spiritual warfare actually is. There is nowhere in Scripture do we see that believers are instructed to take authority over the devil and to rebuke the devil and to bind the devil in Jesus' name. But instead, what are we told in Scriptures about spiritual warfare? We're told in Ephesians 6 that we are to stand against the the schemes of the devil. And we're not to do it in some self-willed, bold kind of way. We are to stand in the strength of God's power and might. And if you're wondering what it means to stand against the devil, it's certainly not strutting back and forth, yelling at Satan, binding him and taking authority over him, but instead we stand against the devil, biblically speaking, when we replace the lies of Satan in our thought life with the truth of God's word. That is what spiritual warfare is. While Satan will try to put lies into our thinking, spiritual warfare is disregarding those lies as we direct our thought life to the truth of Scripture. I'm sure Satan's having a great time looking at people binding him in Jesus' name, strutting back and forth, yelling at him, saying, I am taking authority over you. Yeah, right. But what what do false teachers do? They're going to be found in Christian, churchy contexts displaying a complete disregard for the power and the strength of demonic beings. Now the point that both Peter and Jude are making is that this kind of carry-on, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous carry-on. Both of them say uh, even the good angels, like the angel Gabriel, who's far more stronger, by the way, and far more powerful than human beings, Even the good angels don't resume authority in and of themselves over Satan and over demons. So the logic is really simple for what Peter and Judah is wanting to try to get across to us. If the more powerful, if the more stronger angels, if they wouldn't even dare to do this, why would false teachers who have lesser strength think that they're in a place to do likewise? It makes no sense. It's, It's irrational behavior. It is unwarranted behavior. It is unthoughtful behavior. And it's for this reason that Peter goes on in verses 12 to 13 to liken false teachers to what? To unreasoning animals. Unreasoning animals that that operate solely on self-indulgence and irrational passions. Because notice what it says there in verse 12. He says, like these... Uh, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil things that they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption, will receive the wages of unrighteousness. So friends, as Peter begins to give to us a, a description of what false teachers look like, this is the first characteristic that he points to. He points to the fact in verses 10 to 13 that false teachers are those who despise authority. But not only that, we turn our attention next to verses 13 to 16, and what we see here is that Peter provides to us a second characteristic of a description of false teachers that are going to be present in the life of false teachers. In addition to despising authority, false teachers will also follow the corrupt desires of their sinful nature. Notice how Peter continues in the second half of verse 13. He refers to false teachers, if you notice it there, the second part of verse 13, he says, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. 
They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices, and they are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way, gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, what is Peter telling us here in this part of his description of false teachers? I think it's pretty straightforward for us to see. No fancy, you know, interpretive gymnastics here. Peter is simply telling us that although false teachers will be found among true believers, you can spot them out because they do not, lo- they do not live like true believers. And what's more, Peter tells us that false teachers have little concern that their walk doesn't match their talk. Or as Peter puts it there, if you notice it in verse 3, that they count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. The word carouse, it speaks of ungodly conduct, ungodly practices, ungodly behavior of false teachers. But notice it says there, when this has happened, when this happens. It's not happening behind only closed doors, but it says they carouse in the daytime. It tells us that false teachers are not concerned about the inconsistency that would be present within their lives. It doesn't worry them. They don't lose any sleep over the fact that that their lives do not reflect the life of a a true follower of Christ. But instead of living in, instead of, they live an ungodly life, instead of living an ungodly life in secret, instead of doing it behind closed doors, they're quite happy to flaunt their ungodliness, maybe even making excuses for it trying to legitimize it, maybe even using a verse or two in the public eye. And it's for this reason, notice in verse 13, how does Peter refer to them? As spots and blemishes. You know what those words mean? It, it speaks of something that it describes, a, both of the terms describe a filthy defect. It, it, they both describe sores or scabs or things that are diseased. This is how he describes them. Yes, false teachers will be found in Christian circles, but they are not part of the body of Christ. If anything, going by these these, these terms, spots and blemishes, if anything, false teachers are like a cancerous growth that latch themselves onto the body, seeking to deteriorate the spiritual health of that body. Spots and blemishes, scabs, sores, disease. That's That's the way that Peter describes them. But notice, they're not, out in the, they're not out in the street, they're not down the dark alleys, but as he says in verse 13, they will carouse you with their own deceptions while they feast with you. You know what feasting is, right? Eating. Eating was a very intimate thing in, in biblical times. You had to be pretty close to someone to actually eat with them, and guess where the false teachers are? They are in that place of Intimacy. In other words, we're reminded again that false teachers will not be on the outer skirts of church life, but they're going to be found where all the action is actually happening. They're going to be intimately involved in the life of the church. They're not the, the, the strange one that kind of you know, walks in, you know, who's that? We never know who that one is. But they're going to be the one that's right there embracing it all, right there in the middle. And notice next in verse 14 that Peter shifts his focus from the public behavior of false teachers to now the private thoughts and actions of false teachers. In verse 14, notice that Peter says that false teachers will have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. So what is Peter telling us? He's telling us that false teachers will have no self-control where morality is concerned. But instead, false teachers will look at women. They will look at women within the church and they will not see them as sisters in Christ to whom they owe purity. But instead, they look at women within the church, Christian women within the church, as potential objects of adultery and fornication. And so, how often do we see this happening? How often do we hear we're in relationships and male 
female relationships within the church where there are boundaries that are crossed where relationships are concerned? How often do we hear of situations where even full-blown adulterous relationships have happened with so-called church leaders within the church? So what does this tell us about false teachers? Well, it tells us that there is a habitual nature to their sinful desires. It tells us that they are sexual predators within the church, and they're going to be preying on the spiritually weak. As Peter puts it in verse 14, they entice unstable souls, which tells us what? It tells us that we should not be surprised to see false teachers at work among new believers, maybe even among youth ministries, where they may be young and spiritually vulnerable women. Under the disguise of authentic ministry, we see here that false teachers target the unsuspecting, they target the undiscerning, they target the unbelieving. But in addition to possessing an unrestrained sexual appetite, notice in the last part of verse 14 that they will also possess an unrestrained appetite for material wealth. They want the woman, but they also want the wealth. Whereas Peter puts it in verse 14, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Now friends, when Peter says that they have a heart trained in covetous practices, what this is saying is that their greedy actions and their greedy motives, they're not just coming about by accident, but they are premeditated and they are deliberate. Hearts that are trained for for covetous practices. In other words, false teachers will purposely view godliness as a means of gain. They will twist the scriptures in a way to manipulate the hearers so that they'll open up their wallets and open up their bank accounts in the way in which they want them to do. And so what is the reminder here again for us in scripture concerning this description of false teachers? Well, it's a warning that it's important that we are on high alert when we see this kind of behavior taking place within Christian circles. Yes, as mentioned several weeks ago, in brief, it's important that every single believer in Jesus Christ understands that they have a personal responsibility to to personally, financially support the mission of their local church as their local church equips the saints and seeks to reach and evangelize the lost. There's a biblical responsibility that each and every one of us as Christians have. But when church leaders are giving instruction to the church about biblical, the biblical responsibility of giving, you know what? They, they can actually do it without dimming the lights. They can do it without telling big, elaborate stories that are designed to manipulate the emotions of the hearers. And they can instruct the church about biblical giving without making out as though God is going to go bankrupt unless the people come in and kind of help them out. Open your wallet for God, that kind of idea. And to strengthen the point even further, notice in verses uh, 15 to 16 that Peter compares false teachers to a false prophet in the Old Testament, a a guy whose name is Balaam. The story of Balaam, if you're ever interested, Numbers chapters 22 to 24, notice how Peter references him there, verses 15 and 16. In reference to false teachers, he goes and he says in verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray. And then he makes a, a, a comparison following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. In short, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. However, Balaam, as we know from Numbers, that he was willing to take money from the king of Moab to try to get God to curse the people of God rather than to bless them. What we see from this example in Balaam is that he was willing to prioritize his own greed over the care and the concern for God's people. The desires of Balaam's sinful nature led him astray, took him off the right path. And although Balaam knew what God wanted him to do, he was unwilling, he was he was only willing to do the complete opposite. He did the complete opposite of what God wanted him to do in order to personally profit himself. However, we know that Balaam's point of decision or his moment of decision, it came when an angel of the Lord came and he blocked Balaam's path, blocked it literally, wouldn't let him go any further down the track. 
But Balaam was so self-absorbed. He was so unspiritual that he couldn't see the angel that God was using. He could not see the hand of God and what God was trying to achieve in his life. However, Balaam's donkey could see the angel. Sinful Balaam couldn't, but his donkey could. And the donkey opened his mouth and he rebuked him with a human voice, rebuked Balaam for his greed and his spiritual blindness. But not only was greed prevalent in the life of Balaam, he was also motivated by sexual immorality. His attempt to try to curse Israel failed, and Balaam tried to then use his influence to promote relationships with uh, pagan nations, go and marry with pagans, <clears throat> which was strictly prohibited by God. And so, why does Peter draw our attention to this? Why does he draw our attention to this Old Testament figure, or this Old Testament example of this guy named Balaam? Well, he wants to illustrate the similarities between Balaam and the Old Testament compared with false teachers in the New Testament. In both cases, we have examples of people who are not truly speaking on behalf of God, but instead they are being carried away by their sinful, fleshly desires. And so he makes a comparison there, gives us an example. And so what, how has Peter described to us false teachers so far? Firstly, we've seen that he's described false teachers as those who despise authority. Secondly, he describes them as those who, who follow their corrupt desires of their sinful nature. But moving on, we come to a third way that Peter describes false teachers. It's found in verses 17 to 19, and that is that false teachers proclaim an empty message which fails to save. Notice the way, verse 17, how Peter describes the message of false teachers. Picking up in verse 17 there. He says, these are wells without water, carried away by the tempest who, for, who, uh, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For, in verse 18, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the, the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And so what is Peter describing here concerning the, the message or the preaching of false teachers? What are we seeing in these verses? Well, notice firstly there in verse 17 that Peter likens the preaching of false teachers to a well, as to a well without water. Now, as we know, water was a very great commodity, an important commodity back in that day, especially for those who lived in the, the Middle East and especially for those whose terrain and geography was primarily desert. Water was a big deal. And so when people would journey from one region to another region, when they saw a well in the distance, I mean, I mean that was a very comforting sight. That was a very welcoming sight. Wow, this is great. Because what water represented, it represented life. It represented sustenance. It, re it represented a time of refreshing. However, think of what a disappointment would have been if a person excitedly reaches the water well only to find that it's empty. In many cases, this could be a life-threatening situation. And in a similar way, Peter wants us to understand that this actually describes the preaching of false teachers. What does it mean? Well, it's saying that their preaching, it promises much, but it delivers very little. Those who are spiritually dry, those who are spiritually thirsty, those who are spiritually parched, who are in need of some spiritual sustenance, when they sit under the ministry of a false teacher, all that the preaching of false teachers will offer them is nothing more than false hopes of relief. For those who sit under the preaching of false teachers, all they are left with is what? They're left with frustration. They're left with dissatisfaction, disappointment. Because they know, although the guy's mouth might be going a, a hundred miles an hour up the front, they know that their deepest spiritual needs are not being met. But you see, this is what happens. This is what happens when preaching is not biblical. This isn't what happens when preaching is not derived from the Scripture itself. This is what happens when preaching instead focuses on one's felt needs, when it focuses on cultural analysis, 
when it focuses on psychology and human you know, solutions to one's problems. This is what happens. It, it fails to deliver what God's people desperately need. Well, according to Peter, this is one of the marks of a false teacher. They're like wells without water. They will eventually be swept off, like he says, they're like a cloud in a storm reserved for the day of, of judgment. But notice in verse 18 in your Bibles there, notice that Peter elaborates a little bit further here on the preaching ministries of false teachers. He refers to them as great swelling words of emptiness. Now, what is Peter focusing on here? He is focusing here on the clever, skillful oratory of false teachers. In other words, don't be surprised if false teachers are incredibly gifted orators. Don't be surprised. They're great, swelling words. It's talking about the oratory here. Don't be surprised if a, if a false teacher, such a great orator, who can captivate a crowd just with the way that they can speak. With their skillful oratory, they can give the impression that they possess deep theological understanding. With their clever and skillful oratory, they can, they can give the impression that they have pr- profound spiritual insights. With their oratory skills, they can even try to convince people that they've heard direct revelation from God, apart from Scripture. When in reality, what does Peter tell us? Great orators, but they have absolutely no true spiritual substance to offer. Empty. That's what he says. They may possess a lot of personal charm. They may possess a lot of you know, charismatic appeal, but their message is simply not biblical. It is void of biblical truth. Now, to be honest, I, this is a concern to me. It's a concern to me from time to time when I come across an advertisement for a church who is looking for a new pastor, and I have a quick glance at the job description for no other reason than just to sort of say, I wonder what they're actually looking for. Don't worry, I'm not trying to find a job elsewhere. Um, trying to, just trying to get a feel for like, well, what are they actually looking for a pastor? What, are, what, are churches, what does this church want from a shepherd to pastor their flock? It's a concern to me in the job description that a big focus has to do with one's oratory skills. It has to do with one's charisma. But it has very little to do with the biblical qualifications that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The qualifications of an elder. In reference to a person's oratory skills and charisma, you hear that they're looking for a person who is dynamic, engaging, relevant, authentic, genuine, real. And in my mind, I'm kind of going, what about the other words? What about biblical? That's a good word, good word, isn't it? What about theological? What about faithful? What about truthful? See, at the end of the day, what is the most important is not so much the delivery of the message, but it is the content of the message. I'm not saying that it has to be one or the other. I'm not saying if you want to have good theological sermons, you've got to listen to the most boringest people out there because it doesn't have to be one or the other. But it's just to say that it's better to have an average public speaker whose content is biblically solid and theological than an incredibly dynamic, authentic communicator with not a whole lot of biblical substance. Again, Peter points, the point that he wants to get across in the first part of verse 18 is that false teachers can be gifted orators, but in reality they have very little substance to offer, spiritually speaking. That's how he's describing the preaching of a false teacher. And notice, and also in verse 18, the message of false teachers, well, notice it, it targets the fleshly desires of the hearers. Notice what he says there, picking up in verse 18, it says, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty, that is freedom, they themselves are slaves by, of corruption, for by whom the person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Do we see what Peter is explaining here concerning the preaching of false teachers? He's telling us that false teachers are not interested in bringing truth into people's minds, but instead they are aiming their messages 
targeting their messages at human fleshly lusts. They, they, they preach messages that are man-centered, in other words. Man-centered sermons rather than God-centered sermons. Perhaps it's a message of grace, but to the exclusion of pursuing holiness and Christ-likeness. False teachers promise liberty, as it says there. Freedom. Freedom from a person's problems. Freedom from sin. How to have a happy life. How to have a happy marriage. How to get, finan- get ahead financially in life. Very man-centered. But because their preaching is not centered on God and the scriptures, the people are no better off. Seven ways to have a happy marriage. Five ways to become wealthy. You know, ten ways to have the best life now. Because their, their preaching is not centered on Scripture and on God, people are no better off, if anything. They pull back, they go in the opposite direction, and they tend to stagnate, spiritually speaking. This is how Peter's describing the preaching of false teachers. It is an empty message which fails to save. They are promising liberty. They are promising freedom. Your life will be free from all that is, that is hindering you and holding you back from living the life that God wants. And they listen to the message. It sounds great because they're wonderful orators. But it's a message that fails to save. It doesn't bring them freedom at all. It brings them into bondage. It doesn't draw people closer to God. Instead, it removes them from the truth and pushes them in the opposite direction. False teachers may use Christian terms in their preaching, but they fail to correctly explain the nature of the gospel. They fail to correctly explain the centrality of Christ. They fail to correctly undergird their ministries with the sufficiency of Scripture. It is a message that promises much, but it delivers very little. Well, so far, Peter has described false teachers how? He's described them as those who despise authority, those who follow their, the corrupt desires of their sinful flesh, those who proclaim an empty message which fails to save, and we come now to finally <clears throat> a fourth characteristic, which Peter finishes on here, and that is that false teachers tragically wait a gloomy future. Notice in verse 20 he says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they <clears throat> are again entangled in them and overcome the latter, latter is, end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And this is the way that he finishes the chapter. In this final section, Peter describes for us that the tragedy that false teachers experience and the tragedy of what the future holds for them. As we know, false teachers have, told, have been told earlier on in the chapter, false teachers are ones who come in secretly. They are ones who masquerade themselves as true believers. In other words, they are well acquainted with church life. What this means is that they'll have an understanding of what the Bible teaches on certain topics. In particular, they'll have an understanding of what the Bible teaches on morality. And think about it. They must understand what the Bible teaches about morality because in order for them to, to, to slip into churches unnoticed, they must be able to demonstrate some level of outward moral reform within their lives. False teachers may also have an awareness about Christ. They understand Christ. They understand the name of Jesus but they do not possess a saving faith or knowledge of Christ. I know about him, but are not saved by him. And so this is the tragedy that Peter describes in verses 20 to 22. False teachers who come into the church, they get so close to the truth, they interact so closely with the people of God, but because they are not truly believers, by their lifestyle and their thinking, it reverts back to a worldly kind of way. How does Peter describe this for us? How does he illustrate it to it for us? Well, he says it in verse 22. Peter distro- takes two images from the animal kingdom to try to 
help us to understand the tragedy of a false teacher who would come and masquerade themselves, hear the Bible, maybe read the Bible to the people, talk about Christian themes, interact with true believers, yet fall short of ever being truly converted. He describes it in two ways, using the animal kingdom. Firstly, notice there in verse 22, he speaks of a dog returning to his own vomit. You know, those who have dogs have seen this before, haven't you? Although the dog's body has rejected whatever is put into it, the dog then happily goes back and consumes that whatever that was that made them sick in the first place. Yuck. Secondly, Peter speaks of a pig. A pig who cleans himself. I'd like to see that. <clears throat> but a pig who cleans himself up, probably hypothetically speaking, maybe goes and jumps in the river, but then jumps straight back into the filthy mud pit again. What is Peter saying? Well, here's the point. At the end of the day, for a dog to eat its own vomit and for a pig to enjoy getting covered in filth, these animals aren't doing anything that's unusual or anything extraordinary. Instead, these animals are just doing simply, acting simply according to their nature. Their nature demands that they would eat their own vomit and enjoy time in the filth. And in a similar way, for false teachers to exhibit the characteristics of greed and adultery and selfishness, and pride. All they are doing is that they're acting according to their own nature. That nature that was passed down to them from Adam, that nature that is void of the regenerating work of God. In Peter's mind, it would be better for false teachers if they had never even been exposed to the way of truth in the first place. Instead of being exposed to the truth and never actually getting to experience that truth personally for themselves. Well, that brings us to the end of our study, end of chapter 2 here. Um, and hopefully for us, this last three weeks and three studies on the subject of false teachers has been helpful to us. I realize that it may be a sort of an obscure you know, subject to have to, to go through, but the Word of God gives it to us here. And so it's important that we try to better understand the best that we can. Hopefully it's been helpful to us. And <clears throat> regardless of what we may or may not remember over the last three weeks, I think the warning of the Apostle Peter is very, very clear for us. That as believers, we must be mindful of false teachers. We must be mindful of them. They must be present in our thinking, thinking we're on the lookout for them. We need to be mindful in the sense that we can identify them, expose them, and keep away from them. And as believers, we are only to listen to the true apostles, the true prophets, not the false ones. In case you're wondering, the way that we listen to the true apostles and the true prophets is by keeping our thoughts centered on the Word of God. Because in the Word of God, we have the authentic ministries of the true apostles and prophets, not some guy with a charismatic, you know, a charismatic orator who can wow us with the way that he or she speaks. But instead, it's opening up the Word of God. And for those of us who perhaps know people who are currently sitting under ministries of false teachers, maybe even within our city, be sure to lovingly point, to, point them out, the, the word of God to them. Be, be sure to point, lovingly point out, look what the Bible's describing a false teacher to be. Can you see what's taking place? So that hopefully they may be able to come to their senses and hopefully see for themselves that the person that they're listening to, giving their ear to, is perhaps not really a spokesperson for God. And so that hopefully, Lord willing, they might be able to be led to a place where they wouldn't be fleeced, but that they would be fed the word of God. The reality is that those who are sitting under <clears throat> ministries of false teachers, maybe even those who we know, what they are experiencing is... <clears throat> a well without water. And so we can know, it's not just a case of saying, well, I'm right and you're wrong. We can know that those who might be close to us, we can know that their souls are not being correctly nurtured or adequately nurtured from Christ. And it's for this reason, we need to be able to give those who we know who might be sitting under the ministries of false teaching, we need to be able to give them hope <clears throat> that there is rest, that there is relief from the spiritual dryness. There is relief from the problems that they may be going through, but they are found not in the words of the fancy orators, but the solutions to their problems are found in the gospel, and they're found in Christ. 
Jesus said it himself. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not fancy oratory kind of skills, not false hopes and false promises. This is a sure thing. You come to me. How do we come to Christ? We come to his word. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And for those who we know who are sitting under the ministries of false teachers, be sure to let them know that their spiritual thirst, it can be truly satisfied. It can be truly quenched in the truth of Christ. Jesus said it himself in John 7, 37. He's standing in a public place and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in the meantime, what is our responsibility? Well, in the meantime, may we all do our part. May we all do our part to protect here, our little church here at Redemption Church, to protect it from false teachers, from false ideas, things that are not in accordance to the word of God. We have a personal responsibility for that as church members. And may we as church members, may we respond to God with thankful hearts, thankful hearts for the way in which he does satisfy our inner spiritual needs through his truth which comes and is derived from his word may we have thankful hearts for the way that god is doing that in our lives amen i'm going to pray in one moment so i just invite the music team to come up and they're going to be finishing uh, with one song so i invite you guys up now and in the meantime let's just close with a word of prayer father thank you for your word thank you for this time of equipping and bolstering up our understanding on the subject matter of false teachers. Um, thank you, God, that you have shown us clearly what to look out for, what to avoid. Help us, Lord, to be mouthpieces that we might be able to communicate the same truths that we've seen in this chapter, that we would be able to lovingly and graciously communicate those to who may or may not be under the ministries of false teachers at this time and who are, are struggling spiritually as a result. And Lord, help Help us not to fall into spiritual pride thinking that reading a chapter like this and thinking we've got it all right and everyone else has got it wrong. But Lord, help us to realize that we are just susceptible to false teachers and attacks from false teachers even here. So help us to do our part to lovingly challenge where need be one's ideas against the standard, against the truth of your word we ask that you'd protect us and that you'd lead us in truth. And we trust you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.